You're listening to a message from the Church at Martinsburg. For more information about the Church at Martinsburg, visit martinsburgchurch.org. I want to just take a moment to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Josh McLean, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Church at Martinsburg. It's my privilege to be sharing the Word of God with you this morning. Um, as Pastor AJ said, I want to just take another moment just to welcome you. We truly are glad that you're here. Uh, it's, it's good to be preaching to somebody, so I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that the, the Word of God can be encouraging to you to this morning as well. Uh, as we gather, uh, there are a lot of emotions here with us this morning. Um, there is a, a bit of maybe loss that we sense this morning. There's also a bit of pride, a godly pride, as we just rejoice and we think about what God is doing in our body, what he's doing in our midst. Um, there's a little bit of pain, and there's a little bit of joy mingled here this morning. I mean, it's a heavy day, but it is an exciting day as we begin uh, this new phase that God has for us here at the church at Martinsburg. And so if you are not aware of what I'm speaking of, uh, this past Sunday, we commissioned our lead pastor. He stepped down from preaching, and this is the first Sunday that he's been gone. We commissioned him and his family to be sent to the nations, and they're going, they'll be foreign missionaries uh, for uh, the Lord with the IMB. And so we're, we're excited about that. Um, but, and that's what, uh, that's, that's what I reference here this morning. So in the coming weeks, as we wade through this like, transition uh, piece, I just want to encourage you to stay engaged. Stay, stay engaged. There's, a, there's a, currently a search team that's being uh, put together, and they're going to begin meeting. And Pastor AJ will come next week with an update on how we can be a part of this process in a small way. Additionally, just, on, just some information that will be helpful for us. And so you're going to want to make sure that you're here for next week's update. Uh, so I'll just leave that there with you. And as we transition away from this time, just considering foreign missions and sending and being sent and all this stuff, I just want to encourage you to continue to, to ask God for wisdom for our church, that he give us unity as we move forward. Uh, pr- pr- be praying for the, the pastor that God is sending to, to lead this ministry here. And additionally, continue to pray for the missionaries that God has sent out from this body and that God is preparing to send out, send out from this body. And so uh, it's not over yet. Uh, there's, the Lord has more work to be done. Uh, more, more people will be sent from this place. And so just continue to pray for them uh, as, as we just continue to plod along. As you know, Josh Tingler from Independent Bible Church is going to be serving as the interim pastor or the interim uh, preacher here, rather, uh, over, the, over the course of the, the interim. And so he's filled the pulpit here many times, been a faithful steward of God's word. He's fed us well. And I'm looking forward to sitting under his ministry, under his uh, preaching and teaching and growing there. And so be praying for Josh as well. He'll be preaching through the book of Ephesians starting in October. So keep him in your prayers. So during the month of September, I have the privilege to, to walk us through a series entitled Who We Are. A series entitled Who We Are. And I want to just make this statement quickly. that If you'll notice, there's not a question mark on there. There's not a question mark this morning as we make the statement who we are. We're not, I'm not asking you. Uh, and hopefully you're not asking me. We, we know what God has called us to do. And we're going to spend September to just rehearse uh, to each other as we look at the scriptures, what God has called us to be. And as, uh, by way of introduction to this series, I'll, I'll preach the, today on a, a, a sermon entitled, People Helping People Find and Follow Jesus. That's our tagline. And that's our mission statement. That's who we say that we are. And so I want to help us to just work through understanding what it is or who it is that we are. And uh, we, we know that we're a people helping people find and follow Jesus, but I think we want to look at the scriptures behind that, and so this morning I aim to do that. So you may ask this morning, why is it that we, call, we say that we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus? You might be asking that, the, that this morning. You might say, why do we take a break for top five weeks like we're going to do this week? So this week, 
we'll, we'll, we'll take a break from community groups. Next week, we'll take a break from community groups, and we'll use that time, and we'll leverage it with our top five. Those who are far from God, who need the gospel, will use that time to be intentional, to, to, to hope that God would use it to see people that are far from him brought near to him. Why do we do stuff like that? Why do we, why do we take a week and, and we wrestle the heat and we wrestle the rain and we try to have backyard Bible club in a neighborhood, neighborhood, neighborhood or in a close by neighborhood? Why do we do stuff like that? Why do we raise funds and send two teams to Anchorage or to Alaska anyway so they can share the gospel with, with some native Alaskans and, and while their kids bounce on bounce houses? Why do we do stuff like that? Why do we uh, say that we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus? I, I, the, the, the impotence behind that is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And we, we read that, Jesus' commands there, it's, it's, we call it the Great Commission, and it's this. Verse 18, 19 and 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this is what we do. This is what we've done as a church since the beginning of our time as a church, since the beginning of our formation. This, but, but it's not just then. It didn't just start in 2009. This actually started on that mount when Jesus spoke to his disciples, and he said, go and make disciples. This is what the game plan has been. Years later, for 2,000 years, this is it. And if you think about it, you and I, we sit here in this room this morning as a direct result of the work that those disciples did. They said, hey, we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we're going to give our lives to. And that is what they did. They gave their lives. And here we sit this morning, a part of that heritage. They were disciples. And they helped other people find and follow Jesus. And if I want to just kind of transition here, if I were to ask you this morning about your identity... If I were to ask you who you are, I, I wonder if many of you would probably think, well, my name is, you'd tell me your name, and then you'd tell me what you do. You might say, well, this is who I am. And so I might say, my name is Josh, and I am a pastor, because I pastor people, so I'm a pastor. And you might think, well, I, my name is whatever, and I'm a teacher. I, I teach people, therefore I'm a teacher. I fly planes, therefore I'm a pilot. I, I fix cars, therefore I'm a mechanic. I drive a truck, therefore I'm a truck driver. And that's, that's not exactly how it works with Christians. That's not, we don't find our, uh, our, our, our identity is not defined by what we do, but our identity does drive what we do. I want to say that again. What we do does not define our identity, but our identity does drive what we do. So in that passage, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Christ's words to his disciples are not, is not complete. Of course it's complete, but there's a part of that that we're not seeing there. See, Jesus had told them who they were. He had made sure that they knew who what they were, their identity and who they were in him and in Christ. But moving from that, then he gives them their, their job. This is what you're going to do. This is what you are to go do. And I think we need that this morning. We need to be reminded. When we say, who are we? We don't answer that by, where are people helping people find and follow Jesus alone? We need to figure out, why are we? Who are we? And so I believe that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21 will help us to see and answer that question. And not just find out who we are, but why we do what we do. Why we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. So if you do have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Like I said, we'll read in verse 11 and we'll read down to 21. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, we've got Bibles on the back wall. You're welcome to grab one of those, take them home with you if you need. You can use it this morning as well. Um, we've got uh, regular print. We've also got large print. And as I said, that's a gift to you. 
But I want you to see, though, as, as you turn there, I want you to see what the context for, for Jesus telling the disciples the Great Commission. I want you to see what they actually heard, the, the, what, where that rooted in. And so we'll see that, I believe, this morning, in verse, starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we are beside, or if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, or that who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, you alone are worthy of praise this morning. Together, we bless your name. May you be pleased as we have reminded each other through song of all the great things that you've done for us. As we look at your word this morning, as we meditate on your truths, will you encourage us with fresh truth, new mercies. God, you are near to all who call on you, and we do that this morning. We call on you for wisdom. Would you change our hearts? Would you make us new creations? Would you help us to see from new perspectives? Would you remind us of who we are and send us on our way? We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So as we look at this passage this morning, I want to point out uh, first that Christians have been reconciled through Christ. So as you think about the church at Martinsburg, I want you to think about this. Who are we? This is who we are. We are reconciled through Christ. Look at verse 18. It says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And that word reconcile is an interesting word. It's used five times in this passage, and it's only Paul. Paul's the only writer in the Bible that even uses this term, reconcile. And it, 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 it implies that a wrong has been done. A division or separation has been, has been created between two parties, and it's, it's weird. In English, it, it kind of gives this idea, and it implies that there's no, not necessarily a change between the two parties, that the, the two people involved can, can, they just need to, they don't even need to acknowledge fault, but rather they can just choose to tolerate each other and put up with it. We, typically, when we think of reconcile, we might think of budget or we might think of the law, but when we, in English, when we use this term reconcile, we don't actually have to have them agree. They can just agree to disagree. That can, that, that's what reconcile can mean in English. That's not what we see here in the Greek. That's not what's taking place here. The Greek verb katalaso is a bit different. It's used here to show that the reconciliation which takes place between God, that there is a reconciliation that takes place between God and man. And in this case, the reason for man's uh, estrangement is clearly his sin. It's clearly his disobedience. It's clearly found in, his, in the fall of Adam. And so in order to be restored, man has to acknowledge his sin 
and believe that through Christ's death, he can be reconciled to God. So this verb is made up of, of, of kato, or kata and alasso, which, and, and kata means uh, completely, and alasso means change. So that word reconciliation, as it translates here, actually just means completely changed. Completely changed. And, and Jesus had a term for that. I don't know if you remember in John chapter 3 when he was speaking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is trying to, is, is trying to find out, how, how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to be what? Born again. It's that idea. It's that same idea. You've got to be reconciled. You've got to be completely changed. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus, you won't make it by yourself. You, the, the, the current state that you're in, you'll never make it. You'll never be reconciled to God. You've got to be completely changed. And, and Paul, he uses another term actually here in, in this passage that we'll look at this morning, that we've looked at this morning. He uses a similar term, this idea of, he says, new creature or new creation. It's the same idea, completely changed. And so this reconciliation, it's, it's so different. It's not the same in the English sense, right? There's, there's got to be a serious change. So who is Paul speaking of, though, when he speaks of this new creation, when he speaks of being reconciled? Who is he speaking of when he says, those who are in Christ? That's it. It's those who are in Christ. Look at verse 17, that phrase, in Christ. It's a term that speaks of the relationship between God, between Jesus, and believers, right? Between Christ and believers. And so the, probably the easiest way, there's, there's lots of things that have been said and written, lots of, uh, just hundreds of volumes on this, this one phrase, in Christ. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean? The, the, the simplest way to, to picture it would be this. Can, can you fly to the moon? No, you can't fly. You, no, you can't. You can't fly to the moon. You can't, you can't get up and you can't leave the atmosphere and you can't land on the moon. But if you got in an Apollo spacecraft, I wouldn't recommend Apollo the 13th one, but if you got in, a, uh, if you got in a, an Apollo spacecraft and then you got out of the atmosphere and you got close to the moon, and I'm not a scientist nor am I an astronaut, uh, and you got into a lunar module, then you could land on the moon. If you were in that, that, that device, if you're in that machine, if you're in that craft, then you could do what's necessary what you're aiming to do. And it's the same way with Christ. On our own, we cannot be reconciled to God. On our own, we cannot be made right. This, this sin will not just be wiped away. It won't be just forgotten like it is in the English sense. We can, we can just agree to disagree. That's not what's going to happen. We have to be in Christ. And he is fully capable, more than capable, to make reconciliation a reality for us if we are in Christ. And so there's no ignoring of one's faults those who are in Christ have been reconciled. They've been united again with God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And this, my friends, is the only way. Only by this kind of conversion can man once again become acceptable to God. I want you to stop and think about that just for a moment. Stop and think about that. The creator of heaven and earth would make a way on his own accord for his enemies to be reconciled to himself. Who does that? Who does that? While we were beasts towards him, he made a way for us to be reconciled to himself, and it came out of his own pocket. He paid for it with the death of his son. And this was, it, it, I, get this, this was his idea. So many times we go, oh, I, I wanted to be reconciled, and so I asked God to reconcile me, and he reconciled me, and that's, that's, not, that's not biblical. It's not. We, the Bible says that while we were in our sins, while we had turned our backs to him, that Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. While we were beasts towards him, 
He died for us. That is the beauty. And I want you to think about that. We'd be remiss if we didn't recognize the fact that God started this whole thing. It was his idea, and he paid for it. What a gift. That is the gospel, my friends. That's the good news. And we, as Christians this morning, have received it. Think about that. We've received that. We've received this reconciliation, and it wasn't even our idea. So remember that what we do does not define our identity, but our identity does drive what we do. So this morning, we have been reconciled with Christ. So what does that lead us to? What does that cause? What does that say about us? If we've been reconciled with Christ, we were at war with him, and now we're at peace, and it's because of the blood of his son, what does that now say about us? Because we have been reconciled through Christ, we are also now ambassadors for Christ. So look back at the text. Read, look in verse 20. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you guys know the drill. You see a therefore, you've got to ask what? What's it there for? And so we look back. It's all that we just read. It's all that we just looked at. It's the fact that we are in Christ. It's the fact that we're a new creation. It's the fact that we've been reconciled. That's what the therefore is there for. And because of all that, we have become reconciled. We are ambassadors for Christ. And that word ambassador is another interesting term. It's, it's not so foreign to us, right? We know about that word as well. And it speaks of uh, one who functions as a representative of a ruling authority in a foreign land. So in ancient times, kings would use um, ambassadors for all types of reasons, but they would be the official representative who relayed information, uh, sought favors, uh, made treaties and things like that. They would communicate from one sovereign to another. That's the ambassador. So Paul, Paul could hardly pay a Christian a higher compliment as he says that he and we, us together, we are ambassadors for Christ. So it's not an odd word for us, but it is very significant. I want you to think about this word ambassador. There's, there's three things I want to draw your attention to as, as, we, as we consider this word ambassador. And the first is this. So there's three. The ambassador's appointment. The ambassador's appointment. Consider that nobody becomes an ambassador on his own just because he wants to. How, how silly would it be if somebody just decided that they were going to serve as an ambassador for the United States of America, and they just packed up a few American flags and you know, a couple, copy, couples, couple copies of the, the Constitution and just like went to a foreign country, start, opened up an office and just said, like, we, I, this office, we serve as the ambassador to the United States to this country. How foolish would that be? Would they be recognized at all? No. Why? They haven't been what? They've not been appointed by the, by the United States government. And so they're not, they're not an ambassador. They have to be appointed but you know, that's not a problem that we have today. It's not our problem. We have been appointed. We have been sent by God to go and to share this message of reconciliation. I think it's important for me to share with you as well that your neighbor, God has sent an ambassador to them. Did you know that? God has sent an ambassador to your neighbor. He has a message, and he has sent somebody to your neighbor to share that message of reconciliation. Did you know, student, that, that God has sent an ambassador to the people in your class? He's done that. He's sent an ambassador. Parents, listen to this. God, in his infinite wisdom and his care for your children, has sent an ambassador from him with a message of reconciliation for your children. And you probably know where we're going with this, where I'm going with that. That ambassador that was sent to your neighbor is you. That, that ambassador that was sent to your, your classmates is you. The, the ambassador that was sent to, the, to your coworkers is you. Parents to your children, it's you. God has said, hey, you are reconciled. 
I've made you new. You're a new creation, and now I'm going to send you with my message of reconciliation to your children, to your neighbor, to your coworker. That's not our, our problem is not getting appointed. We've been appointed. Christians, we've got to go. We've got to recognize that we are ambassadors and we need to go. So the ambassador's appointment, we also see the ambassador's agenda. In the 1800s, there was a German ambassador to England, and he was from Germany, and his name was, wait for it, Count Munster. And, uh, you know, he, so he put on his you know, suit coat and his bags. I'm just kidding. He wasn't... Uh, he wasn't the Munsters, but he was from Germany, and he, he goes to England, and this guy was very popular. He, he dressed like an Englishman, even though he was from Germany. He talked like an Englishman. He lived like an Englishman, and he was very popular in England. And that word gets back to Emperor Wilhelm, and he says, hey, uh, did you know that, uh, that you've basically got half of an Englishman serving as, uh, as your ambassador to, to England? And, the, count, and the, 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 the emperor says, I don't want half of an of a Englishman. I want an altogether German representing us there. This, this uh, Count Munster had forgotten what he was there for. He wasn't doing a good job of representing England or, or Germany in England. And you see, ambassador, ambassadors, they don't represent their own ideologies and agendas. They only represent the ideas and the messages, the agendas of their sovereign And when Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ, he means it. And we are his ambassadors, church, and we have a message. Remember that. And that message that we have is not one that we create. It's not one that we manufacture. It's not one that we come up with on our own. It's a message that has been handed down to us. And so as we say this morning, who are we? This is who we are. We don't create that. We don't say this is who we want to be just because this is who we are and this is what we like. No, we take that message. We take the message and this role of being an ambassador. We've been appointed and we have an agenda and we go. So we don't choose those things. We've been appointed and we have an agenda. And lastly, see the ambassador's authority. See, behind that ambassador... Behind him, he rep- there is this representation of a nation in an alien country. It's, behind him is all the authority and power of that nation, and it's all accredited to him. His voice in that land is the voice of his Lord. With this in mind, he is a man to be reckoned with, not a private individual, but a powerful public figure. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not backing down. I'm not going to let up. Paul had confidence in the gospel because it was the power of God. He recognized as an ambassador. He wasn't there by himself. He wasn't there on his own accord. He wasn't there with his own agenda. He had the authority, full authority of Jesus Christ himself as he was sharing and bearing this message of God. The Bible says that God makes his appeal through ambassadors. So when you speak the message of reconciliation, when you speak the gospel, God is making his appeal through you. And that, my friends, is something. That is something. We've been given the message of the God of this world. And we've been, we've been sent with his authority to share that message, to make an appeal on his behalf. It's quite a, quite a, quite a, quite a, a statement. And so because we have been reconciled through Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is our identity. This is our job. As I thought about this passage this past week and the weeks prior, and its implications in my life over the, over the course of, of time, I, I wondered what at times was holding me back. 
with these two statements in, in light, that we have been reconciled through Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ, with those two statements, what's holding you back? What's holding me back? Think about that for a moment. What else do we need? We've been appointed. We have an agenda. We have his authority. What's holding us back? There's, there's lots of information in this chapter. There's lots of good stuff that we could really wring out and just mine out of this text for the next few months, but we're not going to do that. There are a few things that I don't want to leave in that text, so we're going to jump back in as we work through this idea of applying these truths to our lives. So two things I want you to notice about those who have been reconciled with Christ. The first is this. The fear of the Lord compels. The fear of the Lord compels. And so look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And Paul is saying that the fear of the Lord Jesus compelled him to persuade others to accept the gospel. You know the drill. You, you have to see. You have to go back and look what the therefore is therefore. So we look at verse 10. What's it say? Paul says that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the fact that Paul knew that he, along with everybody else in the world, was going to stand before Jesus and be judged motivated him to open his mouth and to share his faith. It motivated him to open his mouth and to share his faith. And he said he knew the fear of the Lord. We know the fear of the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? To, to, to fear God is to have a reverence, a reverence that leads to worship. To, to fear God is to have a respect, respect that leads to adoration. It, it, it's, it's, it's to have an awe that leads to service. So when we think of fear, oftentimes we just think of trembling and anxiety, and that's, that's not what Paul's getting at. It's not, it's, not, it's not a biblical understanding even of the fear of the Lord. And we'll, we'll look at that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, rather, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Without a doubt, Paul is leaning into and referencing these two Old Testament passages. Why does the coming of the judgment of Christ motivate him to persuade others? Well, he knows the judgment is coming for all, and so he persuades them to be reconciled to God. And the only way to be reconciled to God is to be in Christ. Remember that. And so he compels them to, to be in Christ, to be reconciled with Christ. Think about Paul said, uh, Paul said I, I, I'm ready to go. I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. Henceforth, it's laid up for me a crown. I'm ready to go. I'm done. Is Paul concerned about his own life? No. Paul's not, Paul's not thinking, oh, I'm going to stand before God one day. And I want to make sure that I got, my, I got everything. No, that's not what Paul was doing. Paul knew. I, I'm reconciled in Christ. I've been reconciled through Christ. And I'm an ambassador for Christ. Paul knew he was good, that he was, he, he was on the right track. But he wasn't satisfied with that. As he contemplated standing before God, he thought, what about my neighbors? What about my kinsmen? What about my coworkers? What about my fellow students here? Paul said, I'm going to go back. There's a picture of, of this love, of this uh, being uh, the, the fear of the Lord compelling us, and that's in Jude, verse 22 and verse 23. It says, 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Many times in my life, uh, I have had more reverence, more awe, and more respect for mere men than I've had for the Lord. And that's hard for me to say this morning, but it is true. I've had more fear, if you will, of men than I have for God. Paul reminds us that we will one day stand before Jesus in all of his glory and be judged by him. And that's not a truth of your neighbor. That's not a truth of your boss. You'll not stand judgment before your boss. You'll not stand uh, judgment before your, your children. But you will stand before God. You will stand before Jesus and be judged by him. Paul was not a disrespectful man, nor would he encourage us to do that, for us to be disrespectful, but he does remind us to fear God more than man. Is that something you struggle with? Is that something that's difficult for you? Are you always second-guessing decisions that you've made and just wondering what other people might think about you? Are you afraid of making mistakes because it might make you look bad in other people's eyes? Is Is it difficult for you to share your faith because of what other people might say about you, or the relationship uh, might be damaged because you've, you, you're a Christian. These are true. If any of those are true, perhaps you're dealing with what the Bible calls fear of man. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, it says this, The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man lays a snare. What's the point of a snare? It's to kill. It's not to capture. It's to kill. Most snares, as a matter of fact, will kill the, whatever its prey is before it's ever been found. And the fear of man, when we fear men, when we're more concerned about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us, then we've been caught in this snare. And our life is at stake. But the contrast to that is whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever fears the Lord, whoever has reverence, awe, respect for the Lord more than they do man, that man, that person, he is safe. Are you in danger this morning, according to this, this passage? Is your life in danger? If that's you, I've got some pretty good news for you. Over, starting this next Sunday and over the course of the, of the following six weeks, there's a course that's going to be taught by Dean Klein, and it's called, uh, it's called The Fear of Man. And he'll uh, be teaching that six parts, and he'll, he'll be exploring questions like this. What does the fear of man look like in our lives? What does fear of God look like in our lives? How have we lost focus and how can we begin to reestablish the fear of God in our lives? I'd love, for, love to see you guys be a part of that. I know that God can use that in your life to help for, for you to avoid this fear of man snare and to be, put your trust in God. And that class is going to be held in the 11 o'clock hour. So if you're interested in that, you're welcome to attend. It's in room 117. It's just right out that door uh, to your left. And it starts at 11 o'clock. So if you're interested in that, just show up next week at 915, attend the first service, and then head to that class. A dean would love to see you there. And I know there's a lot of people that are excited about being a part of that. But anyway, the idea is that we need to see God as big and people as small, yet so many times the opposite takes place. And that's the idea in Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. I recommend the book to you. We need to see the big picture. So many times, yes, we, we think this person relatively, yes, they are. It, it's, it's big. It's huge. This is, this is going to be difficult for me to face when we, when we see in context how much larger God is. Jesus said, don't fear the one that can, the, 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 don't fear the one that can kill your, your body, kill the one that, or fear the one that can kill your soul. In context, right? Yeah, there, there, there's things that are worthy to, be a, to, to fear here on earth. 
But in context, we need to fear God. He is so much greater. Paul is saying, I I know the fear of the Lord, and it compels me to persuade others to be reconciled to Christ. You know what? So so often we say things like this, I can't wait till uh, I get to heaven, because then I'll get a new body, and I'll be able to run, and I'll be able to pick things up, and I'll be able to see, and I'll be able to to, to just, I'll be strong again, and I'll be better looking again. It's just going to be great when we get to heaven, we get our new bodies. And, And I would say, yes, that's great. And one day we will, as Christians, get glorified bodies, and that's going to be fantastic. But don't miss this passage here. Don't don't miss what Paul says. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. He's a new creature. So think about this. If you truly are in Christ and are therefore a new creation, a new creature, then you have, in a sense, a new body. You have just just, new hands. And the world feels a little different now. You have new eyes. And now we perceive things, and we see things that we didn't see before. And so as Christians in Christ, a new creation, we look at this world and we say, hey, I'm not afraid of that person. When I look at my boss, I don't, I don't see somebody to be feared. I, I see somebody who needs the love of Christ. That per, I see somebody that needs to be reconciled. And this new creation has this new perspective. And he says, I'm gonna, I, I, need to, I need to share the love of Christ with that person. When we look at the world with these new eyes, everything's different now. When we're in Christ, when we, we think about this fact that we are a new creation, there's a new perspective. When we look at Christ, we don't see him as some Lord that's from some distant land that has nothing to do and he's totally irrelevant. We see him as the sovereign of this world and by him all things consist. And knowing that fear, what do we do? We persuade others. And so that's one of the signs. That's one of the signs of, a, of somebody who's been reconciled in Christ. The fear of the Lord compels them. But here's the other part, the second one. The love of Christ controls. So look down at verse 14. It says, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul lived with that same selfless abandon that the Lord had, that Jesus had, who gave his life sacrificially for ours because of love. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Paul was converted by that love, and now that love, that love of Christ controlled him. Christ's love controls. That that phrase can also be rendered this way. The fact that Christ loves us causes us to act as we do. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That word for control in, in verse 14, it means to restrain. It means to hold back, to hold together, to unify, to, to, to hold the ranks, right? Think back to that title, Ambassador. He has an agenda, but what is he bound to? What is he bound to? Can he just, can, is he just bound to everything? Is he, is he controlled by anything and everything, every wind of doctrine, every, every agenda? Oh, we'll just, this year there will be a church that does this, and next year will be a church that does that? No. The love of Christ controls us. Think about a train just barreling down the, the tracks. There's a turn up ahead. It starts out slight, and then it, it, as the turn goes on, it gets a little sharper. Everything in that train, all the momentum, all the mass is trying to push that train in that straight trajectory. But what happens when the rails step in, right? What happens? It begins to turn slowly, and there's some some screeching, there's some squealing. But all of that momentum, everything that is is moving forward is is redirected to the right. It's controlled by those tracks, and that's the love of Christ in our lives. It controls us. And sometimes we want to derail. We want to go off on subjects and, and off on tangents that the Lord has not called us to. But the love of Christ, what? It controls us. 
It, it keeps us in the right way. It keeps us on the right track. The path of the ambassador keeps us on that. John 3.16 is still in the Bible. God still loves the world. God still saves sinners. And we, as his ambassadors, we stay on those tracks. The love of Christ controls us. And we still go forward urgently with this message of reconciliation. You see, church, because we have been reconciled through Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. And church, that's our identity. That's us. That's who we are. We have been reconciled through Christ and now we are ambassadors for Christ. And we say it a little differently around here, but it's the same thing. We say we are people helping people find and follow Jesus. It's everywhere. It's printed on everything. That's because that's who we are. We are a people first that has been reconciled. And now of reconciled people, we go and we find and follow others as ambassadors for Christ to share this message of reconciliation with those who are in need, with those who Christ has sent us to. Thanks for listening to audio from The Church at Martinsburg. Feel free to share this message with a friend and find more sermons at martinsburgchurch.org sermons. The Church at Martinsburg is a body of people helping people find and follow Jesus.